0: welcome to Great Quarter, guys, where freight meets finance. My name is Kevin Hill, here as always with Andrew Cox in a remote location uh, coming at you today. This is episode 42. And how are you doing today, Andrew?
1: I'm good, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is r- the remote location of my living room here. Uh, you'll probably see my, my mis- mysterious cat uh, running across the screen at some point, so everyone be prepared for him. He'll be coming in soon. Uh, but, yeah, episode 42, how big is that? Uh, Jackie Robinson episode. Who else could it be if we're going to do a number 42?
0: Yeah, you, you can't pick a, another 42. Uh, it's retired in Major League Baseball. I, I think uh, Jackie Robinson Day was not too long ago this year. Yeah, they actually year. did a
1: whole weekend. Uh, yeah. all, the whole week, for like three, the entire weekend, Friday through Sunday, uh, all the players wore number 42. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and they the swept the Red Sox during those, uh, during those numbers. So I was happy to see that in uh, Boston, that's good. by the way.
0: Oh, that's good. At uh, least the Braves are doing okay this year.
1: Yeah, right? Braves are in first place. We're happy about that. So let's let's hop on to our ode to highly questionable, which is CEO. No, we're going to do you care or not. Nah. We've got four of them for you today, Kevin. Number one, we'll stick with sports here. This is Michael Jordan. So big news. He joined DraftKings as a strategic advisor. Do you care or not? Nah?
0: I, I don't really care. Did DraftKings uh, buy the, the other the other place that that used to throw on commercials? You know, 95- ninety five.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I don't think that ever uh, that deal ever went through. I think there was some antitrust issues that kind of stopped Mm -hmm. them. And uh, I don't think it ever finalized.
0: I I think you're right about that. And, you know, I I just remember a few years ago, 95 percent of commercials on any sporting event were either DraftKings or or the other one. I, I think they have such market share and such advertising pool that I don't really think it moves the needle all that much. And I'm not sure what 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 Jordan can actually bring that, that you know, especially with product uh, product quality or, or product or new products. So I, I don't really care.
1: I disagree with you. And I think the market disagreed as well. uh, DraftKings stock was up like eight or 9% on this news. I think it's a big deal. I got to disclose. I am a DraftKings holder. I'm I'm long this company. I'm not only long DraftKings, but I'm long the industry of uh, online gambling. I think it's going to be huge. The U.S. It's a shame that the U.S. is so far behind the the rest of the world in this aspect. I mean, I am glad there's not a patty power on every corner, uh, a little betting shop on every corner like there is in Boston or London. But it's about time we have nationwide online gambling. And I think DraftKings is as you said the top the top player right now they uh they own a massive part of the market they're gonna be battling with Penn and others but I think this is a big deal uh you, you know you're getting the best athlete of all time one of the best uh, business acumens of all time for a former athlete uh and you also get a, a very big gambler in Michael Jordan that man loves to gamble so I think uh, putting he his does. name on any type of sports gambling is, uh, is a good place to be so um, I, I do care about that one Okay, second one for you. We've got two back-to-back on cars real quick. The first one is new vehicle sales. This is kind of a, a dichotomy that's that's evolving here. The the first one is new car sales are down about 13% year-over-year in July, but the average price is up 6% year-over-year. Kevin, you care or not about that stat?
0: I do care about it because it's a, a little confusing and it's counterintuitive. I, I know you have a really good explanation for that. I, I think people who are financially secure who can afford cars, I should be buying so it makes sense that vehicle sales are down uh, specifically because uh, you 're working from home right there 's not that demand that natural demand for automobiles right now now, the price increases i don 't know if that is uh, as you say because of uh, higher end cars or maybe some of the components or or pricing power, which doesn 't really make sense either. Uh, But it's confusing. I do care about it because it's a a trend uh, that that we'll be talking about later a little bit with uh, alternative uh, vehicles. But, yeah, it's, it's confusing. But everyone should care about auto numbers.
1: Yeah, I, can't, I don't particularly care about the stats. I find it interesting, but I don't particularly care. I mean, you have a combination of limited stock right now. The the, the manufacturers were down for almost three months there in the early part of the year due to COVID nineteen. You have cheap financing rates are are next to zero, and people are getting really long term. I've seen twenty thirty year uh, car notes these days, which is uh, which is new. They're not, they haven't been doing that very long, uh, and you just have. Consumers gravitating to higher price cars because of that, and it's usually bigger cars. Uh, sm- younger younger people are kind of getting priced out of this market. Nobody's buying sedans right now. I, I read something that uh, uh, that somebody that can somebody from Toyota saying they're producing all of the Tacomas, Forerunners, and Tundras that they that they possibly can right now. People are wanting bigger, uh, bigger cars, and and low low gas prices also deal with that as well. But uh, overall, I, I don't particularly care. luxuries benefited from this, uh, but it's really just a shift to bigger cars. I'm not that, I care more about the next one we're going to go into uh, than this one. Don't really care too much about this. But number three, uh, this is about China's car sales. So China's car sales grew at the fastest rate in more than two years in August. I think it was up 9% year-over-year in August. Kevin, do you care or not?
0: I do. You know, it's a, it's a developing economy. Of course, it's it's you know the second largest economy. Uh, there's a, a burgeoning middle class there, so I think this is a long ter- long term story, uh, kind of kind of like America in the 1950s almost. I, I think I do think that we're almost to, to peak output or, or peak demand annually here in the the states. Four cars, I don't think that it's a huge growth engine at all uh, anymore. But I think in China, and it, it is a huge story, and it's a, a trend that will last next uh, few decades.
1: Yeah, you know I care about this. Uh, this is the largest uh, largest car market in the world, largest luxury market in the world, so the biggest market for Tesla. Uh, of course, I'm going to care about this uh, as a Tesla holder. Uh, Tesla currently has got like uh, 80% of the um, EV market share in, in China, and they're growing that luxury market share, which has you know, historically been dominated by the three big German automakers. So I definitely care about this. Uh, Chinese growth is good for Tesla. So I'm good on that one. Okay, the last one here is about Airbnb and Marriott, and I've actually got a graphic here that I'm going to get the production team to throw up, because I found this interesting. This is uh, some research done by Axios, where they indexed the revenues year-over-year 2020 compared to 2019 for both Marriott and Airbnb, Uh, and of course, Marriott is getting smashed. They're indexed down uh, roughly 50% right now, if you can look at that uh, chart on the left. Now, on the right side, you have Airbnb, who had a massive drawdown but has quickly rebounded. It is now up roughly 75% year-over-year year, uh, in revenue. So, this is actually the first time that Axios believes this is the first time that revenues for Airbnb have comfortably been above Marriott's. So, that's a big deal for me. Uh, I guess I've kind of fore- foreshadowed that I do care about this one. Uh, but, Kevin, I'll throw it to you. Do you care or not about Airbnb uh, spending weekly up year-over-year year, 75%?
0: I do, yeah. I, I, I really do. I, I think Airbnb is uh, the wave of the future. I, I think it's, especially for vacations and in long-term rentals, it's much better being being in a hotel. Uh, You know, one or two nights in in a hotel. But if if you have a family, if you have uh, extended family that that you want to take family vacations, there's no better way to do it than than Airbnb or VRBO. Uh, They are that they offer, you know, the, the, the true vacation packages where you can cook your own food. You know, sometimes you have a pool. You're in a great location. Uh, so I, I think it's it is a trend of the future, and I think it really shows uh, sh- shows what's happening in the COVID uh, type of landscape, where you know business travel is is being has virtually gone to zero percent, uh, which really hurts Marriott and uh, family vacations. Jump in a car and, and drive somewhere to, to get a to get out of town for a little bit, or are still alive and thriving.
1: Most definitely. Uh, so yeah, as I said there, I do care about that one too, uh, kind of foreshadowed my feelings. But let's go ahead and bring in Ben Gordon. We're going to uh, continue our conversation from the Carrier Summit with him here today. We, we've got this uh, this first story that's come out about SoftBank, and uh, I do want to bring, bring Ben in to join us here on this one. And you know this is a kind of a funny story to me. Everyone has been blaming these poor Robin Hood traders like uh, like our own Kyle Taylor, these Robin Hood options buyers for all the recent surge in tech prices, but it, ter- it turns out that it's been Massa Sun and Softbank all along buying these massive uh, call option positions. This actually came out of the Financial Times. They first reported this on Sunday that Softbank is sitting on unrealized gains of roughly four billion from masa's aggressive option strategy that he's played out over the last couple months. Softbank's purchased about four four billion dollars worth of options uh, mostly. Calls and these are calls on big tech companies like Tesla, Apple, Netflix. Uh, they've been across the board. Uh, but the people, the, the, the things that's come out of this is Nomura Holdings uh, out of Japan has said that SoftBank has created a bit of a, a feedback loop that has pressed stocks to higher uh, to to the new all-time highs. So SoftBank has bought huge call positions, and to hedge these banks that that fulfill the call options have to buy the stocks, uh, the, the underlying assets, and that has driven up prices. So. Kevin, what do you make of this story? Let's start with Ben, actually. Ben, what yeah, do you man, make about this yeah. story? Uh, let's bring you in here. What do what you make of this story about SoftBank being revealed as a whale? Does it change your outlook about SoftBank?
2: Well, Andrew and Kevin, thanks for having me, and great to be with you again. So, first, let me say this. Masayoshi's son is a brilliant guy, and he's demonstrated that over more than 20 years, starting with the Alibaba investment and, and much more since then. Uh, having said that, there's a little bit of a head-scratcher, because— if you're an investor in SoftBank, you're expecting Masayoshi Son to do a couple things. One is to invest in great innovation, uh, you know, and then two is to scale up those businesses. You are not expecting to be taking financial options risk, and the derivative trades that SoftBank put on uh, cause shareholders to scratch their heads. It's the reason why SoftBank dropped 8% in market value in the last two days, and it's the reason why a lot of people are scratching their heads and wondering Hey, am I investing in a company that's doing what I expected, uh, or are they trying to extract financial engineering?
0: And I agree with Ben totally on that. It's it's a head scratcher, and it reminds me of a couple things. I, I I wonder if if number one that they're doing these uh, the, these options purchases because the, the bliss-scaling model, uh, you know, the WeWork, you know, we, we all know the WeWork story, has made it harder for them to to execute. Blitz scaling, you know, and and th- this this kind of uh, pivot does, you know. I'm from Oklahoma, so Chesapeake Energy was an oil and gas shell driller that got heavily into hedging, you know, and, and basically became an energy hedge fund. And Booked a lot of profits and losses every quarter on that, and you know the the market turned on them and it, it kind of blew up so if you if you thought you' were investing in in shell drilling you you were a, a little bit, but a lot of your investment was going to to trading energy futures, so it, it reminds me a little bit of that as well
1: yeah, I think my input here would be that just months ago, a couple months ago, Massa Sun came out and said that he was going to go into defensive mode, that he had, uh, had it was going to lick his wounds that had come from the first half of the year where some of his high-flying tech stocks had, had come down in value. But that's been the opposite of what he's done. He's gone out and done something uh, even riskier in these options bets. So that's what kind of, as if I were a soft bank holder, I'm not. I, I would feel, uh, I think I'd be a little bit upset that he, he deceived me in that way. Uh, but uh, something that, that interested me is that the source for the Financial Times says the whale is still hungry. He says that, that this is not the end of what Moss Sun is going to do. He's going to keep going. Uh, I want to ask Ben, you know, if you were a SoftBank holder, what would you think about this plan? Even, even after uh, people have come out against him, he the source says that they're going to keep going with this plan. What would you feel?
2: Well, I think two things. First of all, I'd say, you know what, if I wanted to invest in a hedge fund, I'd go invest in a hedge fund. Uh, it's not the reason why I picked SoftBank. Um, and then on the other hand, I, I guess I'd also give Moscow, son some credit, which is <laughs> he made money on the trade yeah. and, uh, and that's a good thing, right? And so, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. would, would it, would it, uh, uh, what was the line about Brutus and I, you know, uh, I, I'm going to mangle the Mark Antony quote, but you know, the bottom line is that I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't shovel dirt on his grave. I mean, he, he did after all, just, just make money on this, but. Uh, but but I personally would say, look, if I thought I was investing in SoftBank as an engine of innovation, uh, and I realize that I'm now making money because they're operating like a hedge fund, I'd probably evaluate whether SoftBank is the best hedge fund in which I want to invest. And do I want to do that? Or do I want to pick something else? My, my personal view is it's very hard for a company as big as SoftBank to continue to be an innovator. Uh, you know, there's a uh, a, a long history of companies that were great. I mean, you know, <laughs> you're talking about the energy industry before. Look, the most valuable company in uh, in America, I believe a decade ago, was Exxon, and now it's nowhere near the top. It's hard for, for you know, big companies to continue to innovate, continue to stay on top. Uh, and I think it just it illustrates that if I'm looking to invest in innovation, I'm probably more likely to be looking at the small, high-growth challengers to a soft bank than I am to a soft bank. And that, maybe is a good uh, foundation for what I know uh, you guys are looking forward to talking about over the course of the session, which is where there's real innovation and where there's real growth. I don't think it's at SoftBank. I think it's elsewhere.
1: Yeah, you're you're leading me perfect here into where we want to talk about real innovation, uh, whether this company is an actual innovator or not. This is the biggest news of the day, the biggest news probably the week that we're going to get, and this is the Nikola GM deal. I know you got to want to talk about this. Anybody that's been following FreightWaves today have noticed that we've been talking about it a lot uh, because it's big news. The news broke this morning of a partnership between General Motors and Nikola. Uh, Nikola had been searching for a manufacturing partner to produce its line of pickups, the Badger, for some time now. Uh, GM will take an 11% equity stake in Nikola, and they'll have the right to nominate a board member in the future. Uh, but GM is going to engineer, test, and manufacture the Nikola Badger. They will also produce the fuel cells for uh, the trucks and future fuel cell uh, Badgers. And they'll also produce uh, the, uh, the batteries. Their Ultium battery is going to go into the Badgers and the class eight, seven and eight pickup trucks. Uh, the market loved this deal. Nikola's up something like 30, 40% today. GM's up 8%. Uh, ben, how big of a deal is this for Nikola? Does it validate them as a real player?
2: It's a huge deal, and I think it's a huge deal for several reasons. One, as you noted, having GM come in and get involved is one thing, but it's not just money. The $2 billion stake that GM is taking is a big deal, right? I mean, compare that to the $500 million stake that Ford took in another electric vehicle company. You know, $2 billion is a big number, but equally important to me is what it signals in terms of their business model going forward. So GM is going to become a key supplier for, uh, uh, you know, for Nikola. And they'll be supplying electric batteries, fuel cells, uh, et cetera. That means something important for Nikola and something important for GM. For Nikola, it means that they're going to have the benefit of a high-volume, high-quality manufacturer that will help them ramp up. For GM, it means maybe GM gets a future where they're not just an OEM, but also an automotive supplier, which, by the way, uh, tends to be valued more highly than OEMs. Um, a third element of this that is interesting to me is this represents an open system challenge to Tesla. So if you think about it, Tesla is a closed system. It's kind of like Apple, right? Everything is made in, has Tesla controls, everything, the software, the hardware, the manufacturing, kind of they're all in. Nikola is going open source. They're saying, you know what, we're going to build parts of, of the model. We're going to use GM for others. We'll, we'll have other players as well. So kind of like Apple versus Google, where you have a a wild garden versus an open ecosystem, you have the same makings of a battle here in the automotive world. And I don't think it's a coincidence that while GM stock went up and Nikola stock went up, Tesla stock went down uh, close to 20%. Uh, now, you could argue there are multiple factors, the you know Tesla not being included in the S&P 500, you know, uh, maybe a factor. But in in my view, the market looked at this and said, gee, there is now a credible threat to Tesla on the electric side um, that maybe we didn't take seriously prior to today's announcement. Having GM come in validates the model, validates Nikola, validates the open uh, architecture model. uh, And in my view, while, while this is all still early and speculative, uh, it represents uh, possibly the most formidable challenge to, you know, to the Tesla business model to date. One last thing that I want to add for GM, this is also their first move into, Uh, electric trucking. And so it also gives GM access to a bigger market, doesn't have the same conflicts that someone that's already in the space would reflect. So I think it's a very big deal.
0: It's a it's great, a great point, been brought up on oh, on closed source system or, or closed source ecosystem that, that Tesla runs in open source. I, I hadn't even thought about that before. So excellent point on that. I think, um, I, and I think Alan Adler, who who covers Nikola and all the auto manufacturers, uh, both legacy and and the, the alternative fuels. Uh, here at Freightwaves, uh, pointed out earlier today on the, the midday market update, is that uh, there are some analysts calling for, for GM to kind of consolidate their, their alternative electric, uh, I guess hydrogen now, type of, of investments and spin that off because of the valuation concerns that, that, that Ben brought up uh, a bit. And this gives them an opportunity to, to increase that portfolio for an eventual spin off uh, of those assets uh, to, to, to juice the valuation.
2: I think yeah, that's yeah. totally right. In fact, in, in some respects, it reminds me of the tracking stock moves that companies like Liberty Global have made in the past uh, or, or EMC with with uh, you know with their, their high growth uh, kind of so- software you know, uh, uh, networking equipment business, uh, VMware. Uh, it may be a way for the market to get to realize more value. but but th- there's a financial engineering element to this, and then there's a business strategy element. Financial engineering, I think, no doubt, uh, you look at the premium that the electric vehicle companies trade for relative to GM, it makes a lot of sense. But I think equally important is what is the signal for GM strategy going forward? Are we going to see GM make more investments like this on the electric side, on the hydrogen side, on the alternative side? And will GM be positioned to be one of the big winners in this open architecture? Uh, I, I think it positions them very well on both fronts.
1: Hey Ben, uh, Andrew here. So you know, although Nikola's never produced a single car, uh, no, nor a battery or any product for that matter, they are currently valued about a quarter of what GM uh, is valued at. You know, they've been around for 120 years, sold nearly eight million cars last year. Who got the better end of this deal? It seems that it seems that Nikola might be getting away with the steal, but uh, you know, GM didn't put any money up front in this to begin with. So who got the better end here?
2: Well. If you just look at the stock market, Nikola went up 50% wow. and GM went up 10%. So you, you would say Nikola because it gives them <laughs> the huge validation relative to yep. what they had before. On the other hand, if you look at aggregate dollars, uh, actually the total amount of market value that each gained isn't that different. Because if GM is worth four times what, what Nikola is worth and they're up you know 50% versus 10%, you could argue that the market is awarding similar value uh, increases to both of them. Meanwhile, if Tesla's down 20%, you could argue that Tesla's down that much more. I, I haven't done the the math the, to be precise about this, but I'll bet you the Tesla 20% decline is significantly more than the 50% increase in Nikola plus the 10% increase in GM. So, um, but the other thing I would say is, look, the market is is uh, it's the saying. In, in the short run, it's a voting mechanism. In the long run, it's a, a waiting mechanism. So the the real question is that. How does this look a year from now, two years from now? And uh, my guess is, look, they both won uh, and they'll both continue to win because it makes strategic sense for both GM and Nikola.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I completely agree. And, and, uh, and Andrew's my, my answer to that question is that someone called Nikola not too long ago just a, a business plan. But they're executing the business plan like you should, you know, you're, you're partnering with with larger players uh, that bring a lot of, of not only cash, but a lot of talent and, and a, lot of, a lot of means, a lot of production, a lot of expertise uh, to, to where you haven't made a car yet, you haven't made a truck, you haven't made a, a, a big rig yet, but you're, you're lining all the pieces up right now to be able to do that without a lot of the investments on your end to, to build that infrastructure.
1: Yeah, they've saved themselves billions uh, by not having to build out these truck lines. And uh, what's his name? Trevor Milton said today on his interview with Andrew Sorkin and Mary Barra on CNBC, he said that they never planned to to have truck lines. They never planned to build out uh, trucks. So this is a big deal uh, for them. And it's a big win, I think, a a massive win and validation for uh, Nikola. So Let's move on to our, our last topic here. And this is something we I, will, I have two topics, but we're only going to have time for one. And, and we're just going to pick the one that I think is 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 very interesting and quite funny. So, Ben, you uh, posted about this on LinkedIn, and this is Sarcos Robotics. They're based out of Salt Lake City. Uh, they just raised $40 million to help accelerate the development of these exoskeletons. These are robots that augment humans. It makes them much stronger, something like 20 times stronger. Uh, and I've actually got a short video here that I'm going to have the team play for you because they're, they're, they're kind of hard to, uh, to imagine unless you see them. It was a stretch. From my imagination. So here, play the video for us, guys. Thanks.
0: And so he's just going to uh, grab onto this thing, get some of that form and force closure we talked about, and he's going to line up those rails and slide it in. That is one person doing a three-person task, and that's what the exoskeleton can unlock in many different industries that we're really excited about. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so yeah, it was a stretch from my imagination to see those things. They they remind me of something out of a Call of Duty video game. That that thing's about twenty years in the making. Ben Sarkos has been around since the 1980s, uh, but in recent years has raised nearly hundred million dollars to help commercialize these things. Do you do you really think there's going to be a demand for these things in warehousing and and logistics? Well, here's the thing. I remember when RFID came out,
2: and everybody said this is crazy. You know, it costs fifty dollars per you know per tag. Who's going to put a fifty dollar tag on a you know, bottle of, of, you know, whatever CPG you want, $3 tube of toothpaste. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the answer was when you manufactured at scale, that $50 tag came down in time when $50 became five cents, it was cheap enough for mass adoption. So I think about it the same way. I mean, you know, are you going to pay, uh, I don't know, a hundred grand a suit or whatever, whatever the cost is for, uh, you know, for, for someone that, that, that's, uh, $40,000 $40,000 know, a year worker in a warehouse to increase productivity? Probably not. But with scale, as as the cost pursuit comes down, uh, can it make a big deal? Yeah, I think it can. And what I love about this is it's a great illustration of the fact that there's this false dichotomy. You, know, you alluded to my LinkedIn post between man and machine. It's not man versus machine. It's not like in one corner there's the warehouse that has no technology, and it's just a, a bunch of guys operating the way they operated 50 years ago. And in this corner, you've got the 100% fully automated warehouse of the future. No, it's really man-plus machines. So the idea of somebody with an exoskeleton that can lift dramatically more, it could be two times, three times, four times more productive, hey, that makes sense. And, you know, I think you will see that happen. You'll see that be adopted in high-volume warehouses. Especially, think about this if you're locating a warehouse somewhere that's expensive, it's an in-market, you know, like you're serving New York, and you've got a high-velocity warehouse in New York where the real estate's unbelievably expensive, if having an exoskeleton means that you can uh, operate with much more velocity and therefore not need as much real estate, you know what? Maybe you don't care as much how expensive the suit is if it means that you're saving on the much bigger ticket item, which is the real estate. So, You know, I I think it's, on the one hand, you know, the the, the jokes are fast and furious about, uh, you know, Jetson's technology in a warehouse. Um, But I actually think, I think there's something to it. And I also think there's a reason why you have corporate backers here, Caterpillar, GE Ventures, Schlumberger. These guys know that if they can extract more productivity in their own industrial settings, or if they have industrial technology that could be more valuable in, in combination with this, that makes a big difference. So are we going to see this reach mass adoption in 2020? No. Uh, but could we see it over the next three to five years? Yeah, I think we could.
1: I'm just excited to see, or at least I'll say the, I'm I'm looking at this video thinking, all right, it moves like a snail. And I, I wonder how it's going to compete with, you know, those Boston Dynamic robots that move like uh, canines that move like, I mean, they're like gymnasts nowadays, and they're only going to get better. So I'm I'm excited to see how these machines um, Innovate and iterate and get to a better position where they actually move well, but they move kind of like snails right now. So I'm excited to see how they grow. I, I, we may just be looking at the first version of Iron Man suit. We don't know that yet, but uh, I do think it will get better than just being able to pick up heavy things. So that's it's going to be fun to watch.
0: I, I think it'll be fun to watch. I, I, I'm more, I, 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 I like to call it more of a Robocop. I, I think more of RoboCop than, than Iron Man, which I don't know why, maybe because I'm a child of the 80s. Uh, but I, I think another thing, Ben, uh, nailed it with uh, productivity, I think safety. I, I think there's a lot of, you know, oil field services. There's a lot of heavy machinery. Uh, you know, sometimes we think about warehouses as, uh, you know, parcel, CPG items. But, you know, there's there's heavy industry all around the world with really heavy products and really large, uh, significant safety concerns. And I think um, an exoskeleton could solve a lot of safety issues, Um, you know, certainly, you know, back issues and um, and dropping things and and workman's comp. So I think that's another another area where I, I think this will work out very well once we can manufacture these at scale.
1: All right. Well, I think we're about to have to wrap it up here, Ben. We again didn't get to Amazon acquisition rumor mill nor the antitrust conversation. We're going to get to that one day. Uh, we'll have you on again here in the next couple of weeks because you're you're always uh, interesting and, and great to talk to. You. Thank you so much today, Andrew, Kevin. Thank you
2: both. Great to be with you.
1: Thank you, Ben. So, Andrew, I
0: think right. we have two minutes left uh, in the show. So,
1: uh, um, what are you guys talking about- on at uh, what do you guys have coming up on uh, Put That Coffee Down tomorrow? I saw Duner's already out uh, already out getting it on on social media.
0: He is. He's already out promoting it. I'm going to promote it uh, later on today. It's, it's about freight brokers just and, and reputation. A lot of ways we are, or I say we are, I'm a former freight broker, so we're, we're traders of transportation, and we get blamed for... By, by either party, if prices or rates go up or rates go down. So we're just a messenger, really. Uh, you know, we're tacking on some margin for our sales effort and kind of, uh, you know, managing the deal. Uh, but but if, if rates go lower like they did in, in April, you know, bottomed out, you know, we, we don't really control the market dynamics. It's all about supply and demand when load volumes uh, crater rates are going to crater when, uh, when we get into to environments like we're at right now, where it's a very hot market, there's a capacity crunch and rates go up, shippers don't like us at, at, at all, uh, because rates are going up, but we're just a messenger, we're, we're, we're like a stock broker, you know, the, the market goes up, down, the stockbrokers don't really have any control over that.
1: All right. That sounds great. Uh, For everybody looking out uh, for the Passport team, looking out, we've got two papers coming out this month. I think that are going to be really great. They're both partnered. Uh, One of them is Vector IQ, something with Vector. Uh, We're doing a carrier uh, fleet technology systems market share paper that I think is going to be great. Uh, And then the second one, we're doing a Redwood automotive trends, uh, trends in automotive shipping. So uh, be on the lookout for either of those, both Passport customers and, uh, and everyone alike.
0: We also have the carrier rate report that just came out last week as well. It gives you the outlook of carriers for the next quarter, and that will wrap it up for today.